My attraction to sales was, I just, I love hearing other people's stories. And that's really what sales is all about, is being able to understand what they're about and what are their motivations, but then also helping them to solve a problem. The most important part is, in order to best serve your customers, and as a salesperson to best work your territory, you need to know what are the most likely metrics of success. And so we had data for everything. You have to have a good idea. You obviously have to have a good TAM that has a good opportunity. But all those are pretty much entry to play. The difference between the good companies and the great companies really come down to that talent. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. On this episode, I'm joined by my good friend, Crystal Huang, as guest host. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Sarah Fryer from Square, Nate Wacharzik from Airbnb, and many others. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Also, I want to tell you about our sister podcast, 996, a bi-weekly show on tech entrepreneurship in China hosted by my fellow managing partner at GGV Capital, Hans Tung, and our colleague, Zara Zhang. In the show, they interview movers and shakers of China's tech industry, as well as tech leaders with a U.S.-China cross-border perspective. It's a fantastic show, and I've learned a ton from these interviews. You can take a listen by searching for 996 in any podcast app. Without further ado, here's today's episode. Today on Founder Real Talk, we are delighted to welcome Kelly Wright. To start off, can you please give a summary of your background, Kelly? Yeah, thank you for having me here, Glenn and Crystal. It's excited to be a part of this. My background is I actually just stepped down for 12 years at Tableau Software, where I was the executive vice president of sales, and I ran all field operations. My history leading up to that is I actually had always been in sales. So I was the person that early in my childhood, I was selling candy bars and I was selling cookie dough. I was selling whatever it is that there was to sell. Then in college, I ended up selling educational books door to door. After I did that, I worked a little bit for Dale Carnegie training and then I continued my career in sales. I sold mortgages for Bank of America And then I decided, hey, I've done so much in sales. I went back to business school to round out a more general business acumen. Then I spent a little bit of time in consulting, both at McKinsey and Bain, before realizing, ha, I'm an operator at heart. And I jumped at the internet boom and ended up going to a startup called Ad Hoc. And I was there for a while until I then started as the first salesperson at Tableau Software. So how did you decide to to go back to sales after jumping into the internet space? And you know, what are your many years of sales experience? What did they teach you up to that point and sort of inform your professional decisions? Well, I was pretty much always in sales. I just took a little jaunt to go to business school and uh, to do some consulting. So it was actually what made me decide to go do something other than sales before I came back to, I think, what my natural calling was. And I did that to really just round out general business acumen. But for sales, my attraction to sales was I just, I love hearing other people's stories. And that's really what sales is all about, is being able to understand, well, one, learning what they're about 
and what are their motivations, but then also helping them to solve a problem. So although I've sold tons of different things over my career, uh, it was really being able to help companies solve problems and help individuals solve problems. Kelly, let's talk about your story, mm-hmm. particularly the, the Tableau part of your story. It's really rare these days to hear about somebody joining a company, a technology company, so early, being the first salesperson or right, right thereabouts, and ultimately crescendoing your career more than a decade later at the same company with a, you know, close to a billion, roughly a billion in, in revenue. Uh, 850 okay, million. 850 million will round up close to a billion where you were EVP. That's an incredible run. I don't think I've ever in my 20 plus years of venture capital ever heard of anybody quite doing that. So talk a little bit about that story. Why'd you join Tableau? And it'd just be great to hear about how that, that whole story evolved. Well, thank you. I, I think a lot of it was just having a phenomenal team if I talk about my own personal journey. So first, just in terms of what led me up to Tableau, we talked a little bit about sales. We certainly can talk about that a little bit more about my desire to want to help other people and also work with a company where I felt really passionate about what the mission was. And so the story of Tableau is I actually knew the initial founders. And that's what happens with startups so much of the time. It's who you know, and it's a network. So I went to Stanford as an undergrad. And so I had a Stanford connection. And when our CEO and and some other folks that were involved in the management team and such were at part of the Stanford community for GSB, for the business school, I ended up meeting people socially just through a party. And one of my friends from college, her husband ended up becoming the CFO of Tableau. And so I knew them and I had met Christian socially through all of that. It actually all goes back to, I mentioned a few minutes ago that I had sold educational books door to door in college. So when I was at Stanford, I worked with this company called Southwestern Company where I sold educational books door to door. And that is where I got a lot of my life principles and secrets of success and all that was from talking to thousands and thousands of families knocking on doors one by one for 80 hours a week for four summers in college. But I ended up actually selling quite a few books and making quite a bit of money in college. So my reputation for Stanford after I graduated was when people were starting startups and they had to go hire their first salesperson, they would say, oh, Kelly, she sold a lot of books. And so they would end up calling me. So that is really how I got introduced to Tableau. There was this whole idea and they were looking to have their first salesperson. And then looking at Tableau, the story of Tableau is just so compelling because it was the the company initially got started because the United States Department of Defense had actually contacted Dr. Pat Hanrahan, who is a tenured decorated professor at Stanford, and he was one of the founding employees of Pixar Technology, mm. which is the movie company. And actually, if you go to his house, you'll see he has three Academy Awards for his work in visualization and digital graphics. And He was asked to help solve this problem of how can you actually marry databases with visualization? And that is the science behind it. So Dr. Chris Stolte, who was one of our co-founders, worked together with Christian Chabot, um, our CEO, and Dr. Pat Hanrahan to really commercialize it. But before I started, the mission was always to help people see and understand data. And as a sales leader, I had always been very data-driven in the way that I managed the sales team. It was always about best knowing your customers, knowing your data, where to optimize the data the best. 
And then at the same time, I had spent time at McKinsey and Bain, where it's really all about data. You're leveraging data to best solve your customer problems. While I was a consultant, I just found it really infuriating and frustrating. Of I thought I was relatively good at Excel, but it was very difficult to interact with all this data and to use PowerPoint to display how to be able to tell the story. So I, it was very mission focused. I identified with the mission of helping people to see and understand data. And then when we got there, you know, we were all rolling up our sleeves to just go build the company. And in terms of scaling it, the most people I had managed before Tableau was 16 people. So I hadn't done it before. A lot of the management team hadn't done it before. And I think the principle is each stage we were going through, go figure out which companies had done that stage the best, which individuals had done that the best. Go benchmark, go learn from them, and then hire the best of the best. And the reason that I guess I was able to scale, I think it's not really because of me. It's because I was able to surround the team and all of us at Tableau were able to bring in really top caliber people that were able to help navigate and grow through those various stages. Did you use formal advisors or informal advisors as you scaled and, and needed people to help you at each stage? Or were these folks who you just hired into the company? I think it was a bit of both. Oh, there are all these various stages of the company. One is just building the go-to-market motion. Then it was building enterprise. Then it's hyper growth and all these different things that you're doing, global expansion. So we would do our research and find out what companies were actually the best at that and who led that. And I would just call them and say, hey, I wanted to pick your brain and talk about that. And many times they were already gainfully employed. And so they would maybe not become an advisor for the whole life of my career at Tableau. People always ask about mentors. Some people have the mentors that are mentors for years. I took a different approach of go find the mentor for these different stages. Who are the best people to know for this thing that you're doing? And talk to them and then tell them if they have questions later on, they can call and you just build the relationship that way. And then at the same time, you'd ask those people who are the best person that you know that can go build that. And that's how you build your pipeline of candidates of who to go hire. Well, throughout those conversations, what were some maybe key lessons or, you know, actions that you know, you took, right, from talking to them, as in, were there points as you scaled maybe from, you know, 1 to 10 million, 20 million of ARR that you thought, mm, I should up-level some things and I should go do some things? Were there key, you know, moments where you did something different? I'm going to answer that, Crystal, in a slightly different way. Because when you talk about up-leveling the team, there's all these different things that you could do at different stages of the company, mm -hmm. right? So people at all these different stages would always ask me the question, hey, Kelly, this year or in this stage, what are your three top priorities? And they were always expecting me to answer very tactical, tangible things I mean, that were strategic as well of, oh, we're going to build out the enterprise. We're going to do global expansion, rep productivity, more profitability, transitioning to subscription, all these different things. But actually, those were never my answers of what I was always focused on and what our team at Tableau was always focused on. And actually, for the entire tenure at Tableau, and even now, if people said, what are your three top priorities, they're always the same. Priority number one is people. Priority number two, people. Priority number three, probably obvious, people. And our focus was always of 
you build a high performance, peak performance team based on the people that you surround yourself in. You have to have a good idea. You obviously have to have a good TAM that has a good opportunity. You have to be able to have a product that works. But all those are are pretty much, you have to have those. So they're entry to play. The difference between the good companies and the great companies really come down to that talent. And so when you say, how did we pivot It was really just figuring out who were the right people for each stage of the company. And then as we're growing, how could we continue to invest and up-level the people that we already had while simultaneously sometimes we had to augment the team by bringing other people in that had a bit more experience. Uh, But we spent a lot of our time through those different stages of just talent management, people development, and then creating a really intentional, positive culture to work. And I think through that, we were able to navigate the different stages of growth. So in you know the intentional, positive culture, how do you maintain that? I'm sure there were some hires you made on your sales team that didn't work out. And when folks didn't work out and you had to part ways, how do you maintain that positive culture when some folks are buying into the dream and then not, not making the cut? Yeah. Well, I think that's a multi-part question. First, there is how do you actually build and maintain this positive culture? And we were really intentional. This was a whole company initiative at Tableau. And in fact, one of the things that we really focused on is we really had two main priorities at Tableau. One was to go build a really great business where we were delighting our customers and creating shareholder value and all that, build a sustainable business. And the other was equally important was go create a really positive place to work, a great workplace. And to do both of them, to be able to be intentional of delivering really positive customer value, as well as creating a good workplace, you have to be really intentional on those core values. So we spent a lot of time thinking through what those values were, and it was a whole company initiative. Some of those core values at Tableau was first, We are on a mission. I talked about that mission, help people see and understand data. Uh, Two, we build great products. Three, we use those products. We respect each other. We're honest. We keep it simple. We delight our customers. We work as a team. And then later on, we came up with core leadership values that talked about how we championed those values that I just mentioned, our core values, that we communicated well We fostered personal growth. We championed innovation, all these different things. And so when it comes to your question about talent management, we really tried to think about talent management to adhering to those core values. So one is we were honest. Two, we respected each other. But if you're going to be honest and someone is not doing something well, you have to be quick and honest in a simple but respectful way of communicating what that is. And then our core leadership value was fostering personal growth. So what can we do to help develop and work them through that? And then if it's not going to work, it makes it easier to have a conversation with that person. If that person really believes and trusts that we're there to help them to accomplish their own personal success and they're not set up for success, Either they're in the wrong role and you need to shift them to a different role, or maybe they're just not set up for success in that specific role. And if everyone you're hiring are company builders and aligned to the mission, it's still always a hard conversation. It's just it makes it easier to do with integrity and treating people with that level of fairness. It sounds like that was a 
the culture you intentionally built probably helped a lot as you scaled as a result. But let's talk a little about that scaling process, right? Because going back to your run of first salesperson all the way up to nearly a billion in revenue, running that sales force must have been pretty exhilarating and also pretty crazy. Definitely was crazy. What were some of the changes you had to make over time? You know, in in how you ran the team, the types of people you look for, the techniques you use to motivate and uh, and enable and train people. Would be really interested to hear how those those things had to change as you scaled. Mm-hmm. Well, there's certain things that change, but then there are some core things that always stayed the same. So even though as we're developing and growing the team, there is always looking for different levels of experience and background to help us with those different stages. The one thing that was core were having people that were cultural fits and aligned with those core values. And so I think one of the challenges that some companies have is as they try to scale or as they are scaling, they have a tendency to pivot more on the experience and resume and background Mm. and not spend as much attention on what is the alignment with those core values, who's passionate about your mission, who feels connected to that purpose. And in my opinion, those are just as important, if not in many cases more important than the background and the experience because they need to really, like at Tableau, they had to feel passionate about and inspired by helping people to see and understand their data and doing it in a way that it worked within the core value of Tableau. So that was always critically important. In terms of how we ended up growing, I mean, early days, it was really land and expand. We didn't even have the server-based product. It was a desktop product. We were selling one at a time. A lot of our reps were hybrid reps that were inside, outside, but they were probably heavier on the inside, high-velocity transactional business. And then over time, uh, we ended up bifurcating that sales team. So we had the high velocity land and expand motion, and we still had the land and expand. uh, But as you're dealing with the bigger enterprise accounts, we needed to bring on more experienced enterprise sales reps that could do that strategic selling. They were more accustomed to the white space. They maybe had some more industry knowledge. So that was probably the first bifurcation. I think secondly, We ended up then going into the mode where we were expanding into all these different global markets. So you had to bring people that had the different global knowledge. And at the same time, when we were having more and more customers, initially it was all around customer acquisition. And then once you have a whole bunch of customers, you want to make those customers successful. So we ended up having to really build up the model around customer success and spend a lot more time in terms of customer experience, customer success metrics, customer retention. And all of those, when you're growing so fast, we were using Tableau. We were extremely data-driven. So how are you able to be always on top of that data and be able to have an analytics team and a sales operation team where we could always be able to interrogate our own data and understand how we can make things better. One of the benefits of Tableau that we were selling as a value proposition is Tableau helped make companies work faster and much more productive. And so we had the benefit of using our own product And Tableau was always one of the biggest deployments of Tableau in the world. And that helped us in terms of understanding the product, positioning to our customers because we were using it. But the best part was it helped to make us really efficient and productive to always understand where we needed to go dial the needles and what levers we needed to change. 
the ultimate eating your own dog food? Well, we actually called our internal and still do the internal deployment of Tableau was called Alpo. So uh, we was all eat our own dog food. So when someone said, I need to go do analysis, it's like, I need to go use Alpo. So we definitely believed in eating our own dog food. On the topic of using numbers to coach the team, right? I think we've seen that a lot of companies now in tech are treating sales coaching as more and more of a science, right? Down to even give me your call log and I will go through and you know look at keywords and score you on the quality of the conversations, becoming so granular. One, what do you think of that approach? And two, how did you guys go about coaching the sales team? And were there certain KPIs that you try to motivate people toward? We were very analytic. I don't know if I can really imagine a way to become more data analytic driven sales performance culture. So I, as a leader and a lot of the people that we put on the team just happened to be very into data. I mean, we were hiring people that were very passionate about our mission, so they were very data-centric. Two, we had this great product that we could use that enabled us to be able to do that. But I think the most important part is in order to best serve your customers and to, as a salesperson, to best work your territory, you need to know what are the most likely metrics of success. And so we had data for everything. I would say on a typical, and I worked a lot of hours, so on a typical 14-hour day, I mean, I literally was in Tableau probably six to eight hours a day. I was in it all day long, every day. We did pipeline management. We did lead scoring. We did forecasting. We did territory assignment. Every single thing you can imagine that a salesperson or a sales leader would do, we did in Tableau. But we took it further. It wasn't really just interrogating and understanding what the current situation was, but we took all those analytics and understanding the levers to actually turn them into operational performance dashboards that defined the workflow of how our salespeople worked. So for instance, some example is every day a sales rep would come in, the first thing they would do when they open up their computer is launch the Who's Hot dashboard. So what did the Who's Hot dashboard did? Who's Hot dashboard took everything that we had in terms of the Salesforce data, all the lead scoring algorithm from all the different campaigns that came from Eloqua and all our different campaign tools. It looked at who had bought what and who had registered and who hadn't registered. It looked at case management in terms of what customers had logged different cases and had they been resolved or not. And all of this was piped into a lead scoring mechanism that basically said what customers are hot and what individuals are hot. And the reps would come in and they wouldn't have to figure out, hey, I have all these people I could call they literally just called the first one that was the most hot and they went down and through their day, that's how they were managing their time. For sales management, we were doing the same thing. We had performance metrics that would show what leads are stale. You need to make sure that these leads haven't been called. We would know, we would have a pipeline exception dashboard that would show what big deals were in the pipeline yesterday and they're no longer in today or what showed up today that wasn't yesterday. So those uh, sales managers could go back and find out what's going on with those big deals. And the story goes on and on and on in terms of how we manage customer success, how we manage support. And we did this in every Every department, not just in sales, but it drove everything that we did in sales at Tableau. You've just described three or four standalone companies that I think exist already. Mm -hmm. So to have built those in-house is incredible. 
I wouldn't say we built everything in-house. I mean, we, one of the benefits of Tableau is it, it was able to tap into all these different systems and different tools and bring it all together in a way where it made it very self-sufficient and easy for people to be able to ask their own questions of data and understand their own territories. And one of the things that it enabled all our salespeople to do is different yeah, we had an overall process, and that process was really important, but different salespeople have different things that they want to know about their customers and their patch, and Tableau enabled those reps and those managers to be able to ask the questions so that they could work much more self-sufficiently um, with their data instead of relying on a sales ops team or something to do it. Of course, we had to rely on them for some things, but I mean, again, it was Alpo. We were eating our own dog food. It was helping to make us much Sounds more like productive. Sounds like you were really like use the analogy of Moneyball, like you were really Moneyballing your sales effort like to the nth degree, you know, really programming kind of almost every minute of every day for every person in the organization to be most effective. Yeah, well, so so I'd say there's two things with it. One was how we actually leveraged and tapped into the data. And so we were a very data-driven organization, not only in sales and all the organizations, but that really helped to optimize our performance. At the same time, though, you can't just look at metrics and you can't just look at the data. I think one of the things we focused in all those different areas of growth was how can we help to create a really unique and differentiated and delightful sales experience for our customers? And how could we empower our sales team to do that in a unique and differentiated way? And one of the things that you know, we had learned is if if you look at why people buy, it's over 50% of the reason why people would buy any product. It's not the actual product. It's actually their experience with the company and their experience with the sales rep and the people that they're interacting with. So we invested, of course, on the sales process that every company does, but we also invested heavily in communication type training. So how can we help make everyone on our sales teams great communicators? How can we do storytelling training so people can really understand what is the motivation of the customer and what is making them tick? Not only on a superficial level of why they called you in the first place, but what are the actual drivers and motivations at the company, but then also what are their own personal motivations and what is going to make them individually successful, whether it's career progression or they're going to get recognition or they're going to be successful. And then doing a lot of this challenger sale mentality of how can you actually invoke through this communication a lot of thought leadership on behalf of the sales person to be able to provoke the customer to think differently, to think out of the box. And so although we had all this focus on data, and that's how we actually manage the day-to-day operations, a lot of our sales training and enablement and development was really highly around communication, storytelling, thought leadership, challenger salespeople. So if you go back and think about your time and how you managed your time as the sales leader, bucket it for us. How much of your time did you end up spending coaching people and, you know, really one-on-one kind of training, mm-hmm. helping people achieve their goals on your team. How much of your time were you spending trying to attract and bring on new talent, recruiting new people, interviewing people and, and the like, because obviously you were growing the whole time you were there. Mm-hmm. And how much of your time did you spend helping salespeople on accounts or in the field and and that kind of thing? You know, love to hear about some of the big buckets of your time and how you spent them and maybe how it changed over time. Hmm. 
Well, it did. It changed and evolved over time. Although, as we talked about before, priority one was people, priority two was people, priority three was people. And one thing that we actually did do a lot is we talked about the vital few at Tableau and everyone on the sales team and the sales leadership team, and and then pressed down all the way through the organization is there's always this challenge when you're growing so fast and you're doubling the size of the team and you're onboarding all these new customers and there's always these new initiatives. In addition to people having, I mean, I think I was getting between 500 and 1,000 emails a day. So you're getting all these emails a day and then there's fire drills every second. It's very easy to start focus. You, you think about this matrix of the urgent and the important and people end up, spending time in this reactive fire drill of just handling everything that's coming at them. And I think you have to be pretty thoughtful about always thinking about what are your vital few? What are the few things that it's going to mean to really move the needle? So we, at each given time, we would have our strategic priorities at the company. There was always the people component, which was the hire and retain and people development part of it. And then there'd be some other things that would pop up and that other thing would change here and there. I would say the people part was probably always the biggest part of my job because if you weren't hiring the right people, especially I already mentioned, you know, I I had managed 16 people. I hadn't been in business intelligence and analytics. I needed a lot of help uh, myself because I I certainly couldn't have uh, done it. We had to go hire some really amazing people. And early days, we said everyone in the company should have been spending at least two hours a day each on sourcing and identifying and recruiting. Many times I was spending way more than that. And then you had your strategic priorities you're spending other time on. And then, you know, there there's parts of just doing whatever it takes to be the executive, make other strategic decisions. So, so it changed over time. I think the important part was always being very crisp and clear on what those vital few were for that week, for that month, for that year. Mm. And then at the end of the day, every day, knowing that you've actually made progress on those three things rather than answered a ton of email and done all the reactive stuff and those three things were punted to tomorrow. So I think that's maybe how I thought about it high level. Great. Going back to you know your early experience selling books door to door, right? Uh, what were some important lessons that you learned from that experience? So I sold books from the time I was eighteen till I was twenty one or twenty two, and some of the best life lessons that I've ever had and success principles I actually learned from that. So let's just paint the picture a little bit of what those days were like. I was working eighty to one hundred hours a week, six days a week, literally talking to thirty families a day. So imagine you have this teenage girl carrying on her shoulder 25 plus pound book bag, walking, often running door to door, often being chased by dogs, being stopped by police that are asking if I have a permit. And a very high percentage of people, I know the audience here will probably find it shocking, but the door-to-door salespeople are not usually the most welcome person that comes to the door <laughs> in any given day. And so there were thousands, literally thousands of doors slammed to my face over the course of those four summers. And so it teaches you a lot about personal character of just when the going gets hard, how you can get up and just keep on going, which is really, really transferable to the startup world because it gets hard all the time. But I think a lot of it is, you know, when you're going door-to-door one person either buys or they slam their door on the face, whatever happens, when you go to the next door, 
The person that answers the door could care less what happened next door. And so it's learning to really control your own emotions and control your reactions and to control what you're doing. Be able to control what you can control and not worry about the the rest and keep on going and put your best foot forward all the time. So that's first. Second, it really taught about grit. I mean, by far, that was the hardest job that I've ever had in my life. There's other things that were more stressful, but that was the hardest. And I think third is... When you're selling books door to door, people make a judgment as to whether or not they want to answer the door and talk to you in the first couple seconds. And so you learn a lot about just general communication. How can you connect with people? How do you use eye contact? How do you use the verbal or nonverbal communication skills? And be able to really ask people what their stories are and what their motivations are. And that's what I found was just so fun because you meet so many different people And then you also learn when you're having a really tough day and it's pouring rain or it's scalding hot or you have blisters on your feet or whatever it may be, you know, one person doing something really nice for you or just giving a smile, it can make all the difference. And I think that's really important, not only in sales, just how people interact with others day to day of general principles of treat people with kindness and respect, be able to understand their story, relationships matter value the importance of communication, all those people things that laid the groundwork, not only for sales, but just building a high performance company team, all of those kind of principles I think were really important. Fascinating. You said that success really comes down to one's mindset. We can see why you've been so successful. It's it's clear. (laughs) So Kelly, we end every episode with some hot seat questions. All right. Uh, Ready for the hot seat. Just say the first, first thing that comes into your mind. First, Tell us about a favorite book of yours and why, and maybe one that is relevant in business context. Definitely one of my favorite books is Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I actually was first exposed to that book through selling books at Southwestern. Everyone had to read that book as part of our sales training. And I was so motivated by that, that when I was done selling books, I actually went to work for Dale Carnegie. And I actually did sales training and leadership training and public speaking training, where the basis of all that training was that book. I, I think that book goes to a lot of the principles I just talked about that I had learned of just how to interact and connect with other humans human beings Mm -hmm. and how that basis of human and people interactions is a really a ground basis of success, regardless of what function or industry you go into. Next question. What's something that you believe that you think most people don't? I believe that belief makes a huge difference. I think oftentimes people are so focused on the mechanics of what you need to do And it comes down, I think, Glenn, to one thing that you just said a few moments ago, is it's a mindset. And people always say this, if you believe you can do something, you can get it. If you don't believe you can do it, then you have a real problem. And I think a lot about business and leadership and whatever it is that you're going to do, you need to make yourself be able to believe. You need to fundamentally believe that what you're setting out to do and your goals are fundamentally possible. And you need to believe them individually, but you also have to have that level of inspiration where 
whether it's inspiration or convincing or however you want to call it, of your team and people that report to you and people that surround you or people you're working with, everyone has to believe that what you're marching to try to do is possible. And one of the best ways to actually develop that belief is actually through data. And some people don't realize it. Like some people believe that to go think big, go think big, and then hope is a strategy. So hope is good. You want to have that hope and belief. At the same time, you have to have tangible, actionable, bite-sized chunks that people can look and say, oh, I believe I can do that to make the difference. So I, I think a lot of success is about belief. And it's very analogous to what you hear about Olympic teams of people who end up being Olympians. They spend a lot of time thinking about the belief thinking about how they can visualize winning, what it's going to feel like when they are the first person to break that finish ribbon, and how can you actually build that out so it's not just an aspirational goal, but it's actually a very possible, likely, tangible result that people understand and believe that they can get there. Kelly, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for being here with us on Founder Real Talk today. It was a great episode. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000, from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com.